So today's passage will be taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 14, verses 16 to 38. So that's the last part of Exodus. Um, and as we turn to Exodus, what you'll notice in this passage in particular is that there's a clear pattern. So keep your ears open for that. Exodus chapter 14, chapter 40, verse 16. Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him. So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the month in the second year. When Moses set up the tabernacle, he put the bases in place, erected the frames, inserted the crossbars, and set up the posts. Then he spread the tents over the tabernacle and put the covering over the tents as the Lord commanded him. He took the tablets of the covenant law and placed them in the ark, attached the poles to the ark, and put the atonement cover over it. Then he brought the ark into the tabernacle, and hung the shielding curtain, and shielded the ark of the covenant for, as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the table in the tents of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the curtain, and set out the bread on it before the Lord, as the Lord commanded him. He placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table, on the south side of the tabernacle, and set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain, and burned fragrant incense on it, as the Lord commanded him. Then he put up the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering near the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered it on burnt offerings and grain offerings, as the Lord commanded him. He placed, he placed the basin between the tents of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. And Moses and Aaron and his sons used it to wash their hands and feet. They washed whenever they entered the tents of meeting or approached the altar, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses set up a courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out, until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all the travels. This is God's word. So, yeah, we want to uh, continue the story, and we, uh, we pray are in the wilderness, uh, and that's this passage that we've just read in Exodus 40. Let me just pray again briefly as we uh, focus our minds on this. Now, Father, we do thank you so much for your word, and we thank you that through your word, you speak into our lives, and your word changes us and convicts us and renews us and excites us, it feeds us, it leads us, it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, and we pray that that light might lead us to Jesus afresh this morning. We pray that in his name. Amen. Well, uh, back in the day when I was a student, I had a whole lot of different part-time jobs, and one of my part-time jobs was in a bakery, and uh, in this, it was a, you know, a bread factory, and uh, I stood basically at the very end of the conveyor belt, and the bread would come down the conveyor belt, 
and I would grab six loaves of bread, slide them uh, and whack them into a tray, none of the six, and then I would stack the tray. So that was that was the routine. Pretty intellectually demanding, but I uh, I coped with it, and uh, I would do that through these small hours of the night. I knew, though, that that bread didn't come from nowhere. Uh, all I saw was the bread coming down the conveyor belt, whack, bang, slap. But uh, it didn't come from nowhere. Just before it got to me, a machine whacked it into a bag and put a little tie on it. Just before that, it had been an area where it cooled. Just before that, it had been cooked. Before that, it had risen. Before that, it had got mixed. Like There had been all these stages down the conveyor belt that I had nothing to do with, but when I got it, I knew it hadn't come from nowhere. And it's the same in our worship of God. We need to remember that we stand pretty near the end of the worship conveyor belt. The Bible's story of worship has been going for thousands of years and we're well down the end, but our story of worship today doesn't come from nowhere. And God expects that we know what has gone before. The worship of God unfolds progressively through scripture and what has gone before us informs us and shapes us, teaches us and helps us and God expects us to know it. Now we can't look at every stage of what's on the conveyor belt this weekend. I wish we could but we'd need much more than a weekend and you wouldn't have any free time. So we're only going to do four parts of the journey. And that's why we move now from the garden, the Garden of Eden, to the desert. We really move from paradise to shadowland. And I'll explain that as we go. In the Garden of Eden, we we saw that Adam and Eve, created by a majestic and glorious and powerful God for relationship with him, enjoyed intimacy with God and served him, almost priestly service, in the garden. That was true worship in those two dimensions, serving God in his world and enjoying intimacy and relationship with him personally. But sin wrecked it. Sin drove a wedge between the creator and his created ones. And now, Israel's worship in the desert shows us what it will take to get back into presence, to God's presence. It shows us what it will take for sinners to again have relationship with a holy God. And it will take a lot. It'll take a hang of a lot to get sinners back into relationship with God. Maybe you've seen uh, a, a relationship just go through absolute chaos. Maybe, maybe you think of a marriage relationship where there's been unfaithfulness, there's deceit and cover-up, there's endless hurt and pain, there have been tears by the bucket full and it's just awful. And you look at that relationship and you think, oh my goodness, like, can this ever be repaired? Could, could we ever get this thing back together again? 
you know that if it's ever going to work, it's going to take a hang of a lot. And that's the story of sinful people trying to come back into relationship with a holy God. But what we see here is that God is determined to make that relationship work again. And we're going to see what God does to make it possible. He is determined to find a way for sinful people to again have relationship with himself. And so he sets up a meeting place where God and his people will meet. And it's kind of weird. Like there are there's a tent and there are sacrifices and bowls and altars and basins and utensils and robes and priests and incense and lights and lamps. It's kind of bizarre actually. And yet, although it's weird, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. God was teaching his people then things which he expects us to remember. And this gives us an amazing picture of gospel worship. So let's look at it. We're going to look at two things. A place to meet with the God we rejected and a powerful message from the shadows. Let's make a start. First of all, a place to meet with the God we rejected. God determined that he would meet with his people in a tent. That, that's what a tabernacle is. A tabernacle is a tent. You could actually say uh, to your friends or your family, hey, let's go tabernacling next summer. If, if, that's, that's what a, a tabernacle is. It's a, it's a tent. They're camping. Actually, the whole of Israel is camping. The, the nation of Israel is in tents. And now there's one tent in the center of their camp where God will meet with his people. Later on, that will become permanent and they'll build a temple. But for many years first, there's this tent where God meets. It's actually often called the Tent of Meeting. And the first thing to notice about the tent of meeting is detail. Oh man, there is detail on everything. The materials, the dimensions, the construction, the layout, the utensils, the older, the basins, the, the priest, the priestly garments, the incense. There's detail about everything. In fact, Exodus chapters 25 through to 40 give the detail. And maybe some of you have, um, you know, been all excited after a church camp and think, oh, yeah, I'm going to read the whole Bible. And you start Genesis 1, and like Genesis, piece of cake. It's lots of good stories. And then you get into Exodus, and the first part of that, you've got plagues and all sorts of exciting, scary things happening. And then you get to about Exodus 20, and it starts to get a little bit tougher. And by chapter 25, it's really sorting out the men from the boys. Yeah. It gets hard going because there's just so much detail. And if you survive Exodus you'll probably die in Leviticus. It just gets so hard. There's so much detail. Everything God wanted in this tent of meeting is prescribed in detail. And you'll notice there's a theme tune in the passage that we read. It's there in verse 16, first of all. Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him. Verse 19, as the Lord commanded. Verse 21, as the Lord commanded him. 
Verse 24, as the Lord commanded, and so on, right the way through. Moses had to do everything as the Lord commanded him. God left no room for innovation. He was not after imagination and creativity. He's the creative one. He was going to tell them exactly how to do it. It's like a mother with a little kid, and she says, hey, Johnny. It's always Johnny. Uh, Hey, Johnny, I want you to go to the bathroom. And I want you to wash your hands. And I want you to use hot water. You run it till it's warm. And I want you to use soap. And I want you to rub your hands together really, really well. And then I want you to rinse them thoroughly. And I want you to get a towel and dry them. And then I want you to come and show me that your hands are clean. Right? She is not leaving anything to chance, is she? Why not? She knows Johnny. All the Johnnies are the same. And so she, uh, she gives all the details. And God gives all the detail because he alone knows how he is to be worshipped. Worship is about pleasing him. Worship is about honouring him. And he has a right to say what is pleasing to him and what is honouring to him. And fallen, sinful, rebellious people don't know how to please him. He must tell them what to do. Our best ideas are not going to cut it. Have you sometimes been given a birthday present and it kind of goes like this? Oh, thank you so much. Like, what the dickens is it? (laughs) I have no idea what I'm going to do with this. Thank you, that's so kind of you. (laughs) Yep, those kind of presents. We used to have so many of those presents in our family that we resolved that we would actually make lists of what we really wanted. And we'd give each other lists pre-Christmas, pre-birthday, so that what you get is actually useful or something you wanted. And that's what God is doing here. He's giving a list to say, this this is what I want. This is what will please me. And so here we have one of the vital principles of biblical worship. God calls the shots. He tells us how to serve him and how to honour him. So that's that's the first thing to notice about the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the detail and why. The second thing then to notice about it is the layout. And we're going to have a, uh, a look at a little diagram um, if this magically comes up. Uh, do I? Yes, here we go. This is this is the magic. Um, the, the tabernacle was designed, it was laid out in three main sections, if you can see these. There was, where am I meant to point this thing? There we go. There was, first of all, the, uh, the outer courtyard where the, the Jews and only the Jews could go. Then there was the holy place that, that's now inside the first part of the tent where the priests could go, and only the priests could go. And then there was the most holy place where only the high priest could go. We read of the holy place 
uh, oh, sorry, of the courtyard being set up at the very end of our passage in verse 33. The dimensions, if you can see them there, uh, uh, indicate it's not a very big tent. The holy place is 4.5 metres by 4.5 metres. So it's like sort of good-sized bedroom, basically. And it was a perfect cube. It was actually 4.5 metres high as well. So an absolute cube. And then there's the holy place, 9 metres long, and then there's the courtyard beyond that. Now, in each of those areas, there was worship furniture. Out in the courtyard, there was, first of all, the bronze altar. And... uh, on that bronze altar, sacrifices, burnt offerings were made. And beyond that, there was a laver or a basin for washing. These are described in verses 29 to uh, 32 in our passage. Then, in the holy place, there were three main items. There was a lampstand, a golden lampstand, representing light and life. There was a table, and on the table was the bread of the presence. It represented fellowship, communion with God. And then there was another altar, the altar of incense, where prayers of intercession were made by the priests. Then there was the curtain that divided off the most holy place, and in the most holy place there was but one item, the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was basically a gold-coated box with cherubim crafted above it, and inside that golden box, the law of God, the two tablets of stone that Moses had received on the mountain. So that was the layout of the tent, and it was loaded with significance. So worshippers would begin their journey down there in the outer courtyard, and it would begin by way of burnt offering. In the courtyard, an animal would be killed on behalf of the sinners. Daily sacrifices, morning and evening, the fire of that altar never went out. And those sacrifices carried one message. The wages of sin is death. You know, Paul says that in Romans 6.23, but that's the message of the tabernacle. The wages of sin is death. (coughs) You remember God had said, (coughs) excuse me, God had said in the Garden of Eden, that if you rebel against me, if you disobey me, you will die. And God takes sin so seriously that sinners must die. It is the only fitting sentence for someone who rebels against the holy living God. But now in his grace, what he's doing is he is allowing a substitute. He is allowing those sinners to bring a bull or a goat or a dove or a bird or a lamb and to have that animal sacrificed in their place. And so day after day and year after year, there's endless slaughter at the altar. If there was daily sin, there had to be daily sacrifice. But then beyond the burnt altar, 
the bronze altar for the burnt offering, there was the laver, the, the basin. And there the priest would wash. You can imagine it's a bloody, messy business killing these animals and in the basin there would be symbolic cleansing from the defilement of sin. And actually the altar and the basin together were a powerful message. They're a message of forgiveness by the shedding of blood and cleansing by washing. Think of it like this. Uh, Think of a little girl who gets into her mother's makeup. Her mother has some very expensive and very precious makeup. Uh, She's been told many a time, no touch. (laughs) But she gets into the makeup. And she absolutely wrecks the makeup. And she creates an incredible mess. It's like everywhere. It's not only all over her, it's all over the bed, it's over the towels where she tried to clean up her mess. It's everywhere. Well, it's a crime easily discovered. And there are two problems to address. There's the naughtiness of doing it. And there's the mess that it's created. In the language of theology, there's guilt and pollution. And guilt and pollution call for forgiveness and cleansing, for pardon and purification for the altar and the basin. That's what happened in the courtyard. But the worshippers could go no further than that. They could get no closer to God's holy presence than that, but the priests could go further. The priests representing the people could now go into the holy place. And first there they would pass the lampstand made of solid gold with six branches with cups that were like almond blossoms. It, it's kind of, you need to try and picture, it's kind of like a stylized tree of life. It it recalls the tree of life and it lights the way to God. Next then, the priest would come to the table, again overlaid with gold, and on this table, twelve freshly baked loaves of bread would be placed every Sabbath, representing the twelve tribes of Israel, and the bread on this table represented then God's people in fellowship, eating, if you like, with the Lord himself. Beyond that, the priest would come to the altar of incense, where the priests would offer incense, not now a blood sacrifice, but offer incense, and offer up prayers of intercession for the people. Well, at that point, the priest was right in front of the curtain, the veil. Behind that curtain was the most holy place. That room, 
represented God's earthly throne room. It, it was literally the most holy place on earth. God, of course, isn't enthroned physically. He's the, the God of heaven and earth. He's vast. He's holy. He's majestic. But he symbolically was present there in that place as his earthly throne. And, and it was exceptionally holy. And God revealed his glory there in the form of a cloud. And we read of that toward the end of our passage, says verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So God was there. Present with his people, in the midst of his people, his glory, his majesty manifest amongst them. He was near them, forget this, near but not too near. Close, but not too close. It's very clear from this layout, you could not just rock up to God and say, Oh, oh good day God, Murray here dead <laughs> yeah God is near but he he's not just your buddy he's not just your mate at work I have uh, most of the time an open door policy when I'm sitting in my office uh, I like to have my door open so that people are free if they're passing by or a student wants to pop in another staff member they can just pop in and, and we can talk I have an open door policy except for when my door is closed. <laughs> Sometimes there's stuff I just need to get on with, I need to get it done, I don't want any interruptions, I shut the door, I tell the PA or the secretary, uh, I'm not taking calls, I don't want to see anyone. But even when my door is closed, some people can still get in. Uh, actually at RDC at the moment, one of my sons is studying for ministry. When the door is closed, he just comes up, knocks on, hey, good day, Dad. <laughs> it's a closed door policy except for some people. God had a closed curtain policy. That curtain was always closed except for one person on one day each year. On what was called the Day of Atonement, the high priest could go behind the veil and enter into the most holy place and there make atonement for the sins of the people, taking the blood of an animal, smearing it over the top of the Ark of the Covenant and there interceding for the mercy and the grace of God for his people. And by that sacrifice, God's anger was again turned away from his people and he would continue graciously to remain there enthroned in their midst. So that is the layout of the tabernacle. And uh, that's a photo that Moses took and posted on Instagram uh, 
and you you can see uh, something of how it looked in his day. Now to us, it all seems very odd, doesn't it? And yet, the very existence of it was a gift of God's grace. It it showed that God wanted to meet with his people. Remember, he had made us for himself. He's a personal God. And now in grace he opens a way for rebels and sinners to somehow now come back into his presence and have fellowship with him. The tabernacle really was a new sanctuary. We, We saw that the Garden of Eden was like a sanctuary, a dwelling place of God where his people served him and where they met with him and had intimacy and relationship with them. And now in the desert... The tabernacle is like a a mini portable Garden of Eden. It it must have been beautiful there in the middle of the desert. There's all this gold and colour and braids and and bells and smells and and, and, uh, wonderful things. It's delightful. It's aromatic. If you like, it's pretty. It's beautiful. There in the desert, God meeting with his people. Remember the Garden of Eden, precious stones, gold. There it is in the desert. Remember the Garden of Eden, uh, a tree of life. There it is, represented in the desert. God again present with his people. Close, but not too close. And on a few occasions in the Old Testament, people messed with the rules. And it was a disaster. If you want to read of some of the drastic consequences of messing with the rules, have a look at Leviticus chapter 10, where Nadab and Abihu come to an unfortunate end. Or have a look in First Chronicles 13, where Uzzah comes unstuck. Well, God had established a place to meet with the people who had rejected him. But but the tent of meeting was not only a place of meeting. It was itself a message. In signs and symbols, in in shadows, really in half light, it was preaching the gospel. Tabernacle worship has been superseded by gospel worship. We're further down the worship conveyor belt. And that's now been superseded. But already, what that was doing was preaching gospel worship. Tabernacle worship was actually about the worship that we now engage in through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so having looked at the place of meeting with God, I want us to now think about the powerful message that was being preached from the shadows. The powerful message preached from the shadows. Probably my favourite place on earth is a town called Wanaka in the South Island of New Zealand. Anyone been to Wanaka? Ah, yes. Some of the chosen are here. Uh, 
It's a wonderful place. It's um, it's very beautiful. It's very pre- pretty. It's kind of picture perfect. There's lakes. There's snowy mountains behind. It's just delightful. I've spent a lot of time in that area climbing um, mountains when I was young and could walk and uh, uh, skiing and enjoying that area. It's a beautiful place. And whenever I go back to New Zealand, I try to go back to Wanaka if I can. At Wanaka, there is a visitor centre, and in the visitor centre, there is a model um, of all the all the area, all the mountains, the valleys, the hills, the lakes. See this model, and on the model there are these uh, little buttons and pictures around the edge, and so you can push a button, which is very exciting, and some little dot lights up in the mountains, and you're like, oh, okay, so that's where it is, and it gets a little story of what goes on there. You know those kind of places, and so. Many a time I've gone to the visitor centre and you push the little buttons and you work out where you went and, oh, that's we skied down there and we climbed up that ridge. It's very exciting to see it all there. It's, it's not as good as the mountains, okay? <laughs> You'd be mad to go to Wanaka and say, I'm just going to the visitor centre. Like, forget the mountains. I'm doing the visitor centre. I just want to push the buttons. You'd be crazy. But if you've been to the mountains, to actually go to the visitor centre gives you perspective. It helps you understand what's going on. And that's what tabernacle worship does. We'd be mad to go back to tabernacle worship. Who wants that? We have the mountains, the glory, the majesty of worship in Jesus Christ. But tabernacle helps us kind of see what's going on. And it actually preached a powerful sermon with three points, of course, because it's a Presbyterian sermon. Uh, three powerful points preached from the shadows. First of all, it preached the awesome holiness of God. It preached the awesome holiness of God. It revealed again a God of beauty, of glory, of majesty, of power. It preached that to have fellowship with God is an awesome thing. And friends, God has not changed. He is still a holy God. It's still an awesome thing to know God and have relationship with him. But don't play games with God. Don't take him lightly. Don't take him superficially. He's not your mate. He's not your buddy. He's the holy God. And it it still says that in the New Testament. Listen to these words from the end of Hebrews 12. It says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Yep, that's a New Testament verse. And it sounds very Old Testament, doesn't it? Because God is still the same. He's still holy. Worship him with reverence. Worship him with awe. 
He is a holy God. For those of us from Western cultures, those of us who are Aussies or perhaps Kiwis, I don't think we're too good these days at reverence and awe. We used to be. It used to be more part of our culture. I remember when I was a boy at school, if um, if the headmaster came into a classroom, like boom, all of us up to our up on our feet instantly. No one had to say, "Please stand up." The headmaster I'm like boom, you just up. You wouldn't dare not. Uh, I, I was raised. I mean, this is way back in the last century. Um, back in the back in the days, you know, we would we would open doors for women. If you were younger, you would always stand for someone who was older. That was part of the culture, but we've become very, very laid back and casual in all our relationships. Other cultures, and as many of you here are from other cultures, where there's still a great sense of honour for other people, deep respect and reverence. I count myself um, very privileged that my PA uh, is a Korean guy. And, and I'm very privileged to have a Korean guy because he has this deep sense of honour and respect. And he actually regards it as a huge honour to serve me. Which I think is just fantastic. <laughs> it, but it's always strange. I'm, I'm not used to it. He finds it to be an honour to do his absolute best for me. Because that's his calling. And that's what we need to recapture in our relationship with God. It is an absolute honour to serve Him. It is a huge privilege to know Him. It's a wonderful thing that we can have relationship with Him. We lay hold of that with thankfulness and with awe. That was the first thing the tabernacle preached the awesome holiness of God. Secondly, it preached our need of a mediator. Outside of Eden, no one can just rock up to God. Our good works, our good intentions, our best efforts will not cut it. God himself in his grace, must provide a way for us to come and the way is mediated by priests and sacrifices. And praise God, now God has given us a greater high priest than ever the Old Testament had and he's given us a greater sacrifice. All this was really preaching and pointing forward from the shadows to the coming of Jesus, the great high priest. He is the one who mediates. He's the one who gains access for us into God's presence. And he offered himself as the sacrifice for our sins. We're not cleansed by the blood of bulls and goats and lambs. We're cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect, precious blood of God shed for sinners. And by his blood, 
He's paid the debt for all our sin. That's why when you come to church, there's no smell of burning flesh. There's no blood on the carpet. That's why at RDC I teach ministry subjects, but I have not had to teach a subject on how to kill a sheep and offer it on an altar. Hallelujah. The blood of Jesus Christ has been shed once for all for the forgiveness of our sins and no other sacrifice is ever needed. If you trust in that blood of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven and you are given access It's the presence of God. Remember our little girl with the makeup? Remember there were two problems? So naughty and what a mess. Well, suppose now her mum comes to her and she says, You know you shouldn't have done that. You know that that was precious. And you know you weren't to touch it. You've done something very naughty. And look at the mess. Look at what it's done. That was very wrong. So let me tell you what I'm going to do. I am going to buy new makeup. And it's going to be the best makeup you have ever seen. And I'm going to buy it for you. And I'm going to give you the most wonderful, precious makeup any little girl has ever had. And I'm going to clean up the mess. So, stand over there, I want to get started. How do you think our little girl responds? I wouldn't be surprised if she bursts into tears, crushed by grace. And I wouldn't be surprised because when I think of what Jesus has done, I feel the same. The the mess I've made, the things I've stuffed up, the wrong I've done, and you too. And Jesus says, I will deal with the guilt of your sin by shedding my blood in your place. And I will clean up the mess of your life. And by the power of my Holy Spirit in you, will begin to cleanse you and change you. Such is the wonderful work of Jesus Christ for us. It's not our works. It's not our effort. It's not our knowledge. 
It's not our attempts to reach God. It is a God of grace who's come to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are forgiven at the altar and cleansed at the basin by the finished work of Jesus. That was the second thing it preached and then thirdly and finally the tabernacle preached that those who have been cleansed and forgiven can have relationship with God. That's what it was all about, wasn't it? God was making a way for sinners to come back into relationship with himself. Sure, there were all these rituals and ceremonies, all these rules, but it was never really about rules and ceremonies and rituals. It was about relationship. They were simply ways of God bringing sinners back into fellowship and relationship with himself. And Christ, by his perfect sacrifice on our behalf, opens the way for us to come into relationship with God. Do you remember what happened when Jesus died on the cross? Do you remember what happened in the temple at the moment that he died? We're told that the curtain in the temple that separated the most holy place was torn from top to bottom. Now, if a human tore that curtain, you'd start at the bottom and rip it up. But it was torn from top to bottom as God symbolically now opened the way into the most holy place for all God's people. It's unbelievable. Used to be only the high priest once a year. And now through the death of Jesus Christ, through the offering, through the tearing of the curtain, which is his body, as Hebrews says, we all have access into the very presence of God. Through Jesus Christ, through, through faith in him, through believing in him. You, every one of you, myself as well, we can have relationship with God. We can know God. We can love God. We can enjoy God. We can delight in God as we were meant to do. We can talk to him freely. But we don't have to go to the temple to do it. We don't have to kill a lamb to do it. Anywhere, all the time, we have free, ready access to God. Hebrews puts it so wonderfully in chapter 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Therefore, it says, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What a powerful sermon preached from the shadows. Preached in sign and symbol. Preaching from the shadows the full light of the gospel that we have in Jesus Christ. And really at the end of the day it shows us one thing. It shows us the preciousness of Jesus. He's our temple, our tabernacle. He's our high priest. He's our perfect sacrifice. He is all you need to have relationship with the true and living God. Apart from him, there is no true worship. 
Apart from him there's no access into God's presence. If you do not know Jesus and believe in him, you will not have eternal relationship with God. You cannot. But with him, it doesn't matter what your life has been like, it doesn't matter how big your sins have been, it doesn't matter what gender you are, what background you are, what IQ you are, what job you have, how much is in your bank account, none of that counts for anything. It doesn't matter how good you've been or how bad you've been with Jesus, you can have relationship with God. That's why I love the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I trust him. That's why I follow him. That's why I want to get to know him better and better. And that's why this morning I urge you as well to know and love and follow Jesus who can bring you into eternal relationship with the living God. Shall we pray? And maybe I can just, I probably, I'm sure I've preached too long, but I don't care. I don't mind getting ticked off later. Can I just leave a minute or two for you to be quietly thinking about your relationship with the living God? Is Jesus precious to you? Have you come through him into relationship with God? Let's think about that for a moment and then I'll close in prayer. Lord God, we have been reminded that you are very holy and yet you are also very gracious. And we thank you that back in the desert you opened a way for your people to come to you and now through Jesus you've opened an even more wonderful way And so we pray that we would trust in Jesus and cling to him and believe in him and through him find out what it is to enjoy relationship with you. We thank you so much for the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you for cleansing through the work of Jesus. And we thank you for relationship with you that we can call you our Father and come into your presence and pray to you and talk to you and trust you and lean on you day by day. Thank you so much, O God, that you have made this possible through your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.